Luke chapter 13, verse 22 through to the end of the chapter. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, um, sorry, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you, Reuben, and uh, thank you to Anna for praying and to Jay for leading and our musicians. Let me just give you a little uh, funny story as we begin. Um, one of the benefits of going to multiple services is I get to speak to the children after the service. And today they were regaled with all manner of uh, crafts, including headbands and glasses. So I asked one child, uh, what's that got to do with Jesus? At which the child said, absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> at which point his friend said, oh yes it does. It's about the blind man, didn't you listen? So there you go. <laughs> um, I won't reveal the identity of the said children <laughs> and which particular families they're from. Now, we want uh, church to be a place where uh, you, if you are Christians, uh, and me as a Christian, feel comfortable about bringing uh, people along to on a Sunday. And I'm not sure that's something we've done uh, always very well. I think it's really important that we do that, and we want you to uh, encourage us and to help us and to speak to us about how we can best uh, do that. One of the constant refrains uh, that you have is uh, make sure your sermons are no longer than 30 minutes. And it's very easy for us to say, well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. But it does matter. And folks are really sensitive to that. And uh, rather than saying at the start of the year that we, and I'm speaking personally, uh, are going to work really hard on that, we really are going to achieve that. So do pray for us as we try to create a culture in the church where the gospel is absolutely clear and it's always going to be odd church to some extent, but we want to work really hard that people feel comfortable coming and comfortable inviting people um, along. Now, what are the most important questions in life? I asked Google the question. 
Google told me 5.7 billion answers. So here they are. Uh, top answer was the following, and this was typical of the first couple of pages. Um, I was encouraged by the answer, number one answer in Google, uh, what are the most important questions of life? It began with an ancient Chinese proverb, he who asks a question remains a fool for five minutes, he who does not ask remains a fool forever. Here they are, the 15 most important questions. What are my values? Am I living my values? In looking back over the last one to five years, where did I go right? Where did I go wrong? What scares me or causes me to procrastinate and not do what I know I should do? How can I take better care of myself? Do I have the right people around me? How am I improving the life of others? To whom do I need to apologize? Who must I thank? quickly, either for forgiveness or for making a positive difference in my life or in the life of someone I love? It's a good set of questions. Number 11, for what must I forgive myself? Number 12, what do I finally need to accept and embrace about myself rather than seeing it as a weakness? Now, the, the last three aren't great. <laughs> what is the one quantum leap I made forward last year? The answer might be none. And listen to question 14 and the way it's phrased. What is one accomplished quantum leap forward I will have made by the end of this year when I look back? Finally, and I suspect this, we've all got smiles on our faces, even though behind our masks. What is worth smiling about right now? at this precise moment in time. Now, I was pretty encouraged by number one in the Google search, what are the most important questions of life? Now, we'll come back to questions in a minute. We start today a new section in Luke's Gospel. Uh, the section is from chapter 13, verse 22, to chapter 17, verse uh, 10. And if you are new to church, these references are just editorial guides to help us navigate through uh, the chapters. Um, we know we're in a new section because Luke, the writer, has a particular way of signaling that. So if you look at the verse in your Bible, chapter 13, verse 22, here's the signal. It's called a geographical marker. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Luke's gospel, it is an historical eyewitness, carefully researched account on the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And the culmination of Luke's account is the death and resurrection of Jesus. One of the ladies who has died, Mary, that many of us knew and loved very well, she always said to me, she became a Christian late in life in her 70s, my faith is based on facts. It's a very striking comment. And if you knew Mary, uh, she was never going to buy into some kind of system or some kind of religion or some kind of theory or set of ideas. My faith is based on facts. And Luke's gospel records the facts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection based on eyewitness uh, testimony. And what we study in Hope Explored is Luke's gospel, facts about Jesus' uh, life. 
Now, although this is a new section in Luke, it is a continuation of Luke's logic. So, before this point in Luke's gospel, Luke's eyewitness account, there have been two big sections. Firstly, from chapter 1, the beginning, to halfway through chapter 9, Luke explains the great salvation Jesus brings. Now, let me explain that. We've just celebrated Christmas, where Jesus came into the world. The name Jesus means Savior. Jesus came to save. He is a rescuer. To save from what? From our sins. And uh, Luke, our writer, explains that very early on in his gospel. Our sinful hearts as humanity, all of our hearts are sinful, separate or estrange us from God. And without rescue, the prospect we face is the consequence of unforgiven sin, which is the judgment of God. And that's the first section of Luke, spelling out that Jesus is a rescuer, a savior, and he has come to save us or rescue us from our sins. And the second major section was from 951 through to just before our passage, 1321. And that is all about what following Jesus means. Following Jesus means, and Luke puts it this way, sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. So, in a sense, doing what we are doing in this room, listening to Jesus' words and obeying them and living our life by them. Remembering, if we are Christians, that we are forgiven sinners and seeking to live our lives accordingly. Now, it's striking from these first two sections of Luke. Section one, uh, what salvation or what rescue is. Section two, what it means to follow Jesus as a forgiven sinner. It is striking from these first two sections that the Christian faith is all about salvation. So, if you were to say to somebody, what does it mean to be a Christian? You might hear the answer, it means to follow Jesus. It means to trust Jesus. But a sharper answer is that it means that, let me speak personally, as a Christian, I am saved or rescued from my sins. That's what being a Christian actually is, someone who is saved or rescues. So a Christian believes they need rescue and a Christian believes that they are rescued through faith in Jesus' death for that uh, salvation. Now, the section we focus on today, it, it begins a fascinating section, and it's all about who is saved. Now, the, the question that begins uh, our uh, uh, section is in verse 23. Just have a look at that. And this question governs the whole section through to chapter 17. It's a brilliant question to get our teeth into. Someone said to Jesus, Lord, who will those who are saved be few? Now, that's a great question for us to ponder. It's a great question if you are not a Christian to ponder. It's a great question if you are a Christian to ask somebody or to read the gospel with them and to reflect on that together. Lord, will those who are saved be few? It's a big question. Who will be saved? 
Will there be few or will there be many? Will everyone be saved in the end? Or will only a few be saved? And let me suggest it's also a very personal question. Not least in a season when we have four funerals in the church. Am I saved? Do I need to be? Why does it matter? Or are you saved? Now, over this section in Luke's gospel, from 1322 to 1710, Jesus will tell us the answer to this very important question. Who will be saved? And let me encourage you, as I have studied ahead with the other preachers in this section, that the way Jesus addresses the question who will be saved is winsome and careful and thoughtful. And it's really designed for people who are interested in Christianity to reflect on a big question like that. Jesus uses all sorts of illustrations to quietly get under our skin. It is an important question. Now, we began with Google's top answer, what are the 15 most important questions you can ask right now? They were good questions. But every one of these questions, and as far as I could see on page one and two of Google, and I suspect it ran on into the later pages, every one of the questions is about questions to ask in my life now about my life now, or about my life in the threescore years and ten that I have allotted on this earth, and more or less. The question Jesus asks or responds to, Lord, will those who are saved be few, is a question about life now and eternal life. For salvation, which is the heart of Christian faith, being saved, is not simply for now, but beyond death for all eternity. So it's a different category of question. It's about eternal matters. And maybe if you are not a Christian or you know somebody who is not a Christian, it's quite helpful to, to, to think, well, okay, have you ever considered eternal matters beyond this life? Lord, will those who are saved be few? Am I saved? Are you saved? Now, Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Uh, notice what he says first in answer to that question. He will say a great deal in answer to the question about who is saved in the chapters that follow. But note the first answer to the question, the first thing he says as we sit down and contemplate the question and its answers. Jesus said to them, strive to enter. Strive to enter. The first answer from the Lord Jesus, which governs the whole section, strive to enter. In other words, enter the door of salvation. Be saved. Enter into saving faith. That is the invitation, the appeal, the exhortation of Jesus to enter in. Today, enter in. Right now, enter in. One of the wonderful things about the Christian gospel and Jesus Christ is that He is always inviting people in. It's an open invitation. Always the invitation is there. 
Yes, talk about it. Yes, think about it. But listen to the first exhortation from the Lord Jesus, strive to enter in. The word strive is a strong word. Its uh, roots in Greek, we get the word agonize. Wrestle with this. There is nothing casual about this eternal question. There is an urgency in the words of the Lord Jesus. Strive to enter in. Strive to enter in. Why? For, and remember this is Jesus speaking. This is the Son of God speaking. It's not me speaking. We're looking at Jesus' words. For there will come a time when Jesus shuts the door. That's what he says. Now, what a difference it makes. If I was to say to somebody, you need to enter through the door of salvation because Jesus might shut the door, that is very different from together, me and somebody who is not a Christian, looking at Jesus' words, and he says that one day he will shut the door. That's very different. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. There comes a time when Jesus says he will shut the door, the door that is rescue or salvation, the door to everlasting life, freedom from judgment. Now, when is the time that Jesus will shut the door? In his wider teaching, Jesus speaks about the time the door is shut in three ways. First, first, when someone is given many opportunities to enter, but they do not take them, there comes a point when Jesus says enough and the door is shut. Now, that is his divine prerogative. It's complex for us to grasp, Let me, let me say to you, I've seen that happen in many people's lives. Now, we never know in the end what decision somebody takes when they are faced with mortality. But I have seen people who for a long time are interested and engaging about salvation, about being saved, But over the years, what you observe is that it's almost like a wall is built to the point where it's just, in the end, like a brick wall. And that's, I think, what Jesus is talking about. It's too late. Someone's heart becomes hard. Now, what constitutes an opportunity that is refused? Well, here's an example of one right now. Here we are. I'm speaking to you about the Christian gospel. Jesus says, you must enter through that door for the forgiveness of your sins. And I'll explain in a minute what that means. And here, therefore, is an opportunity. We gather around the Lord's table. We eat bread and wine. And that is a a means of remembering Jesus' death. Here is an opportunity. So will this be an opportunity that someone lets pass by? 
One of the more sobering things about this season of funerals is that some of the folk who have died were exactly like this. People spoke with them for years. And I remember speaking to one of them in a, an orchard as it happened. We spoke about Jesus. And it was like a brick wall. Hence the words of Jesus, strive to enter while you can. Another reason the door is shut is when someone dies. Beyond death, we will all face Jesus as our judge. Jesus teaches that. And he says, if you begin to knock at the door then, if you wait till then, beyond death, and then begin to knock at the door and say, let me in, Jesus said it is too late. Remember, it's Jesus who's speaking with the authority of the Son of God. And that day when it is too late may come for any of us at any time. Heed the words of Jesus, strive to enter. When I walk to church on a Sunday morning, I walk past Mary's flat. Mary is the lady who died. And I always look in. I always have looked in. It's not that I'm looking in now. I always used to look in, and she would wave to me. But I looked in this morning, and there she's obviously not there. And sitting on her breakfast table is her marmalade jar. Just like that. Strive to enter while you can. And thirdly, the door is shut when someone return, when Jesus returns at the end of this present age and establishes his new creation. And that is a key part of, of Christian belief. And this present age now is the opportunity to respond. Hear the words of Jesus, strive to enter. Now, let me just shift tack. Um, Jesus is a brilliant teacher, and now he, he moves now to, to say, don't presume that you have entered the door of salvation. And don't presume you know who will. For many who presume they are saved will be shocked to find out they are shut out. That includes religious leaders, people like me. And one of the wonderful things about the Christian faith and the disarming things and the most provocative things, it doesn't matter who you are. Status means nothing. It's what you make of Jesus and his cross. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's everlasting judgment. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these are uh, saints or, or, or important people in the history of God's people. When you see them and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you're not in it. You're outside it in God's judgment. Don't presume you are saved because you are religious. Don't presume you are saved because you are a religious leader. 
Don't presume you are saved because you go to church or are a minister in a church. Don't presume you are saved because you are part of a church community. That's really important. Don't presume you're saved because you're just part of this church community, enjoying the fellowship, the friendships that are there, the preaching, the worship. Don't presume you are saved because you are good. Don't presume you are saved because you belong to a particular family or tradition or indeed nation. And don't presume to know who will be saved. Don't presume to think it has to be like them or them. Now, just at this point, we're beginning to think, will anyone be saved? And then we get this uh, striking comment from Jesus. The truth is, verse 29, people from everywhere will be saved. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And those who are saved and not saved are not according to worldly credentials. Behold, verse 30, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now, all of this is saying to us, if you're not a Christian, or if you're wanting to share your faith with someone who is not a Christian, all the things that we think matter for salvation, like religion or status and the way that we live or where we've come from and so on and so forth, none of these things matter in the end at all. Whether you are a minister, someone in my position, or someone sitting and listening on a Sunday, what matters is that we have entered that door. That's all that matters. Pause. Catch our breath. Let me just summarize where we've got to. Lord, will those who are saved be few is the question. Answer. One, strive to enter in. For there will come a time when Jesus shuts the door. Moreover, don't presume you have entered through the door of salvation or presume to know who will. But people from everywhere will be saved, and those who are saved and not saved will not be according to worldly credentials. Now, there's one thing we've not commented on yet, and that is the reference in Jesus' first answer to the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Narrow door. That means the door is hard to get through. Why is it hard to get through? Because of who and what the door is. The door is Jesus Himself. He is the only way through which humanity can be saved. That is His own claim. It is not a Christian's claim that Jesus is the only way through which humanity can be saved. It is Jesus Christ's claim. And so he says, and I'm quoting from John's gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And listen to what Jesus says next. Whoever believes in me is not condemned. Condemned means judgment for eternity. But whoever does not believe is condemned. That is an exclusive claim from Jesus, that salvation is through him alone. He is the door. He is the person through whom alone we can have salvation. The door is narrow because it is only through believing in Jesus that we can enter. And moreover, specifically, and this is the what about Jesus that is the entry point, by trusting in his sacrificial death for the forgiveness of sins. In order to be saved, a human being must look to Jesus for their salvation and come to the cross of Jesus Christ where he died as a sacrifice for our sin to take the judgment that we deserved and to say sorry to God and say, I need forgiveness. And that is a narrow door. Why? Many will not go through it. And we're talking about people saying no because they will not accept Jesus' exclusive claims. It runs against our human instincts to say there must only be one way. But it's Jesus who says it. Many will not go through the door because to them his crucifixion as a means of saving faith is foolish. Now, you might be listening online or here and not a Christian. And when I'm talking about the cross as the means of salvation, you might, you might think, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's foolish. It's odd. It's strange. Why would a, a death of somebody be the gateway to glory or to eternity? Well, let me encourage you to stick with Luke to keep coming and listening. And over the weeks, I pray and I hope and expect that this will happen. The cross will make sense to you, even though it is foolishness perhaps now. Many will not go through the door because they will not admit their sinfulness and need of forgiveness. I was saying at one of the funeral services last week, I'm in funeral mode. It's amazing how they always come in threes, rarely fours. I was saying at one of the services this week, and the room in front of me was full of very gifted, able people, business leaders in all shapes and forms. Some were Christians, some were not. Duncan, the man who had died, was an able business leader and a clear Christian. And this really struck, I think, with the hearts of those who were there. It takes a great deal of humility for people like all of us to come humbly before God and say, I'm really sorry. My life is a mess. I'm a sinful person through and through, and I need Jesus to forgive me. That takes humility 
and many will not do it. Now, the verses that follow make the point that Jesus must go to Jerusalem to die for anyone to be saved. Let me read it. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem." Jesus is saying, Luke, and we'll get to this in Luke's gospel, I must go to die. Uh, Jesus will never be deflected from his destiny to die on a cross because that is the way that we enter in through the door of salvation. And so as we finish, Jesus' words, strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus uh, raises this prospect in our minds which side of the door are you on? Are you inside and safe for eternity? Are you outside in terrible uh, danger? And if you are outside the door, and you are thinking that the Lord Jesus is speaking in a direct and a harsh, in an unloving, in an uncaring way, because his claims are exclusive, let me leave you with these two thoughts. He says that the only way through that door is through trusting Him, and specifically through trusting in His death for the forgiveness of your sins. The one who says that gave His life in order to achieve that for you. He died for you. He disarms us. And secondly, it is of great anguish and sadness for the Lord Jesus when people refuse to enter that door. His reaction is not a human one. I have told you a hundred times, and I've had enough. Look at his reaction. He's speaking about Jerusalem, and that is representative of the Jewish people who have rejected him. He says, how often would I have gathered you under my wings? It's a picture of a, a, a hen. You may have never thought of Jesus in that way. It is an intimate, beautiful picture of somebody taking what is fragile under their wings. And Jesus says, look, I would have loved to have been your Savior. That's what he's saying. Now, come with us over these coming weeks. And bring people along to hear what Luke has to say to the answer. Who is saved? And the last word, strive today to enter through the door. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that over these coming weeks in Luke's gospel and through our series on hope on Sunday evenings and through uh, hope explored uh, the course uh, that many, many people will come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as a church family, we would learn to be an environment where people readily can come along and bring people along and feel welcome and at ease. And we really pray for that. We really want to be that kind of church. Help us to learn how best to do that and encourage us and encourage all those who come 
For these are important questions, undeniably. And to be on the right side of the door is a wonderful, wonderful place to be. It is truly uh, amazing that Christ Jesus saves us. And we pray these things in His name and for His sake. Amen.